Ke pasa Mufasa, Shalom, Nihao, and Namaste. Big things are happening everywhere you look these days. We recently cruised past a milestone without even noticing. This is officially our 101st episode of the Micropreneur Podcast. I've been hard at work, head down, grinding, and just this morning noticed that we've officially joined the 100 Episode Club. And that's thanks to all of you who have made this happen. So cheers, fam. All right, on to the next one. Today we've got Johns Hopkins psychedelic research scientist Manoj Doss on the podcast. The serotonin 2A receptor, this is, you know, at least with classic serotonergic psychedelics, they bind to this receptor that does seem to be highly expressed in the cortex. And so there's this idea also that there seems to be greater plasticity. And so you might be disrupting some of these really hard-coded or crystallized semantic memories. But now that also has a bad side to it too, right? Like there's certain areas of cortex that don't just really process memories, but that rather they process like sensory information. For example, you know, your ability to construct the world and see edge and these sorts of things a lot of times comes from the back of your brain, the back of the visual cortex V1. Manoj is a top-tier cognitive neuropsychopharmacologist. No, I didn't have to rehearse that title a few times. It just rolls off the tongue. Cognitive neuropsychopharmacologist. We're talking big brain shit. Episodic memory and whatnot. I'm going to let him fill you in on the details of his research right now. As always, thanks for listening. It's an honor to host the Micropreneur podcast for you. And please consider rating and reviewing this episode wherever you're listening and sharing it with a friend. Without further ado, let's get this show on the road. Okay, Pasa Mufasa Manoj Das of Johns Hopkins Psychedelic Research. What's up, Manoj? Welcome to the Michaelpreneur Podcast. How goes it today? I'm doing all right. So, Manoj, I consider myself to be pretty educated, right? I've got a BA. I read Wired Magazine. I like to watch independent cinema and listen to Ethiopian jazz, etc. But I still have no idea what the fuck most academic journals and clinical researchers are talking about when they publish articles resulting from their clinical research. And I've noticed through going on the conference circuit, going to Horizons, Wonderland, et cetera, et cetera, this general disconnect between a lot of what's being presented on stage and a lot of the research, the charts, the graphs, the clinical data, et cetera, and the general public like myself who want to understand this stuff. So would love to hear from you right off the bat. Do you notice this disconnect? And do you think there's a way to translate some of this really important clinical data and research into a more palatable and accessible format for the general public? Yeah, I mean, I think this problem exists throughout you know, all of science, and it even exists within science, I guarantee you that a lot of the people who are, you know, publishing some of the most complex, you know, papers, uh, don't know every equation that goes into, you know, those papers. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, impossible to know absolutely everything. And I mean, it takes, it does take a while to start to just be comfortable reading some of these like academic papers. I think that was a big thing in grad school where I, I was lucky enough prior to grad school to working in a lab where they really encouraged you to read papers and to be part of discussions during lab meetings and whatnot. Whereas I had, uh, you know, other people in my cohort that I came with, it came in with who didn't do as much of that. And I remember them struggling a lot more to read some of these papers. So, I mean, it, even now, it, if it's a field that I don't know very well, it's going to take me a lot longer to read these papers. And a lot of times what, I, what I'll spend my time doing is like cross-referencing, like looking up uh, uh, other, uh, other things that they reference, as well as looking up words that I just don't even know. I'll, I'll Wikipedia them, for example. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I think that it's, it's nice to an extent to be able to communicate this knowledge to the public, but it's impossible to get just 
everything out there. And I mean, how are we to explain the most complex system in the known universe with really simple language? It just almost doesn't even make sense. So I don't know. I, I think I, I'm one of those people who struggle more with communicating uh, complex ideas in a simple way. So maybe I'm, I'm just more willing to let it go. But um, I do think it's important. I just, you know, maybe this is where the science communication people come in. Sure. So as far as your day-to-day -day workflow at Johns Hopkins Research, I'd love it if you could demystify a little bit about what that workflow looks like to go from the inception of an area of focus where you say, okay, I'm going to study psychopharmacology of psilocybin and its specific impact on the brain or whatever it may be. What does the actual research look like from that inception of an idea through clinical studies and the research and recruiting volunteers, et cetera, on through publication? If you can give us like a general overview of it. Well, I wish I could tell you because I haven't actually finished out a project from the beginning to end here at Hopkins. I've actually reanalyzed a lot of data and we have started something very, very slowly, but it's nowhere near completion. Like it's going to be at least a a year or two before any publication comes out from it. So it's a bit difficult for me to communicate that. But I can tell you from, for example, at the University of Chicago, when I was working with Harriet DeWitt, that over there, I mean, there was, you know, uh, there was a little bit of a different workflow uh, when you start off with an idea up through its publication. In some ways, it was less collaborative. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that it, I was less reliant on others that I could start something. Basically, I just had to ask Harriet, hey, can I do this? And she said yes. And then at that point, it was up to me to try to write the IRB for it, which that was kind of one of the first steps was you want to write the IRB, the, like uh, this protocol of what you're going to do. And you have to get, you know, institutional review. So, you know, Hopkins or University of Chicago or whatever has to agree to what you're doing. But when it comes to these Schedule One drugs, you also have to get approval from the FDA and DEA. And that was actually a side of things that I didn't see much of. Harriet, I think, always did that for us. Whereas over here, again, it is actually, I'm also not the one doing it. So like Fred Barrett, for example, would be the one doing it. But I have had some involvement with that process. And yeah, it can be a very... Uh, tedious sort of process because the the FDA, for example, can take a really long time to get back to you. And I mean, I think, and sometimes they can come back and say something that's relatively absurd. So to give you an example, there was uh, something we were trying to submit. Uh, we were trying to basically do a study with inhaled DMT. I normally wouldn't be talking about this, but because that project was so far in the past and it never actually came alive, I think I can talk about it now. And we literally got a letter from the FDA basically saying, don't do the drugs as if like, you know, people as if like what people are, are doing the drugs here, first of all, as if it's not like a highly regulated system. And as if, you know, we, if we were doing the drugs, how would we have gotten away with doing all the psilocybin studies that we've been doing? Not to mention, like, come on, we're, you know, all of us are in touch with all the, the hippie scene and whatever. We know, we know if we wanted to go do the drugs, we can go find them somewhere else without endangering our careers. So it's, you know, it, it, there is a pretty tedious uh, uh, starting up process that I've come to realize is, is probably even more tedious since I've been at Hopkins. But then from that actual point of, of once you get all the, you know, regulation and stuff out of the way, then there's a lot of actually making the study. So what you're going to do. So in my case, you know, I like to study just basic aspects of cognition. And so a lot of times we have to, you know, create basically these like, uh, I don't know how to, how to really impoverished video games, <laughs> essentially, where we measure something like memory or attention or whatever it is. 
And so that takes a little bit of time and we also have to figure out, we have to, you have to, it's, it's, you know, I think a lot of clinicians will just take a, ta- what, what people will say is they'll take a task like out of the box. As a cognitive neuroscientist, I like to dig deeper than that and not just take someone else's task, but like look into what's all been done, what's been done with this task. What are the people in this field? Like, for example, with something like recently we've been, we were working on this study that involves kind of like creativity or like convergent and divergent thinking. Um, initially, we basically took the task out of the box and then I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. There's actually people, you know, the people who actually do these studies, who we took the stimuli from, they recommend that we actually do things in this particular way. And so then it became a whole discussion with everybody in my team. And then it was like, okay, we should actually do it that way because the people who, this is what they've been advocating for. And it actually gets you more out of your uh, data than if you were to just take a task out of the box and do, and this is the same thing with memory. I give shit all the time to people who do memory studies in, in clinical, in the clinical world, because a lot of times they'll just take a very basic task. Like here's a list of words. How many do you remember? And you get very little out of your data from that other than, okay, this population or this drug makes your memory worse, right? You want to get something more than it than just that. Like this drug particularly impacts this aspect of memory as opposed to this aspect of memory. And that's not just because this task is easier in this way than it is in this other way, because this other drug actually more uh, uh, strongly impacts that other form of memory. So you can get kind of these, you know, double dissociations when you design your task properly. So anyways, that's a whole other process that I think a lot of times, a lot of clinical environments don't think through well enough and they just kind of take the quick and dirty route. And then uh, finally, you know, then you get to the actual analysis, which some people will do their analysis at the very end. I at least do have a lot of my analyses written. So we, a lot of, most of us code. I actually don't recommend not learning how to code and analyzing your data. I was, I was just dealing with this issue where uh, I realized that there was this really uh, kind of messy form of data and there was no way for me to code it up, to code up, to make it clean. I had to basically do things by hand, meaning clicking around in an Excel spreadsheet uh, to get it into a form that eventually was analyzable by code. And everything I did, I was just like, oh my God, I have no idea if I messed this up. Like to this day, I still don't know if these data are like in the best form or not. Um, and so, you know, I highly recommend doing things by code. And this is, you know, I, I try to write at least a lot of my analyses ahead of time. Um, but you know, there's things you kind of come up with later and then you kind of write them later and you, you realize, oh, actually I should be looking at this as well. And so, uh, you know, from that point, then you get something that's interesting, you write it up, that writing process can take a while, depending on who your co-authors are, because they need to be able to read it. And then they have to like, look over it and make sure you're not saying anything stupid. Um, I also do tend to spend probably more time than maybe the average person writing. And I don't, I'm not saying that's a good thing. Uh, that might just mean I'm a slow writer. Um, or I'm overly cautious with the things I say, which isn't always a good thing because I'm not getting information out there very quickly. Uh, and then you submit it and that can then take, you know, as few as a few months, it can take as long as I think I'm dealing with uh, a paper that's been in review for like eight months, which is pretty absurd. So yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I've had participants ask me, oh, hey, can you send me the paper when it's published? And I'm like, yeah, if I remember that might be like two years from now. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the uh, general flow. And I mean, because of that, there's a lot of pieces that go in there, like everything from like regulatory stuff to, you know, coding to writing. I mean, my day to day is not always the same. There's kind of periods like right now I'm going through a lot of writing, although I, I am back into coding again, as of last week, um, when I hadn't been, I hadn't done that for at least a month. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's a very diverse sort of set of skills where you're just kind of a a jack of all, master of none, I guess. (laughs) 
Yeah, and it sounds like you've been involved in a number of different projects. You know, you've researched ketamine, you're researching cognitive neuroscience, right? Neuropsychopharmacology, et cetera, with a specific focus on episodic memory, or at least have been involved in that. I'd love to hear about right now, what is your specific area of focus and what's the overarching goal of your research, right? Like, what are you working towards right now? Yeah, so I've, 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 only looked at ketamine from a reanalysis standpoint. Again, since I've been here, I've reanalyzed data mostly rather than like actually starting things from scratch and running them. Um, we don't actually have any ketamine studies that we're doing, although we did, there was a study that was done with dextromethorphan, which is, you know, this is what you find in Robitussin. It's, uh, it is also an NMD antagonist like ketamine, so has a similar mechanism of action. Um, but yeah, and I also reanalyzed some dextromethorphan data. But yeah, I mean, um, I guess, uh, uh, what, what am I working on? So I, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in, I was trained as a memory researcher, so I still have that kind of interest in, in the background. Um, although I'm not really doing any kind of basic memory research anymore. Although I still have a few questions from grad school that I wish I could have answered. Um, I still use, I like to use episodic memory as a way of kind of keeping me grounded. A lot of times, you know, there's, when you have a new field, like something like psychedelics, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of ungrounded things that are being said and, you know, models that are created based on like one data set, essentially. And I think something like episodic memory has been around now for, you know, and studied in an empirical way for over a hundred years. So it's grounded in, you know, a very good, it has a good empirical background. There's a lot of really serious researchers. A lot of the kind of magic of episodic memory, I feel like has kind of gone away and it's now just down to like the, you know, analysis of, very kind of uh, uh, pedantic concepts um, in our field. But I think it, because of that, it at least, you know, tells me that, okay, this is, it, it gives me something, again, I guess just to ground myself out, and I've been repeating that for a while. But one of the things that it has made me interested in, um, in terms of psychedelics, for example, is how, so you have, you have various different memory systems. There's not just exactly one type of memory. And episodic memory was the thing I um, specialized in. But these systems are, I mean, first of all, people are questioning, you know, various distinctions in the different memory systems these days. But even if these distinctions aren't completely false, it's definitely not the case that these systems are completely independent. They all interact. And so um, you have, you know, your episodic memory, which is kind of your memory for information from uh, the past, such as uh, your, your declarative memory of, of where and when, um, so it, being able to place yourself in time. So mental time travel is the way some people refer to it. Um, but you also have other sorts of systems like your, your motor memory, you know, so procedural memory, being able to play the piano or ride a bike. And it turns out, for example, you, you know, one of the structures that's heavily involved in episodic memory, the hippocampus, does seem to be involved in the learning of new motor memories, even though it it's, doesn't remain that way. So if you get your hippocampus taken out, you will still probably be able to ride a bike. Uh, but at least the learning of riding a bike, at least initially, might maybe not require the hippocampus, but it's nice to have your hippocampus for it. It'll help you probably learn it faster, potentially, anyways. Um, and so there's other sorts of, there's this other memory system that this is kind of the big distinction that a lot of people have made when it comes to declarative memories is, is episodic versus semantic memory. And so semantic memory is more your information, uh, is memory for facts and kind of concepts. So uh, knowing the meaning of a word or knowing that George Washington was the first president of the country. But you don't have the episodic memory anymore of where you learned that George Washington was the first president of the country or where you learned the meaning of, you know, at least very obvious words like bottle or something like that. 
if you got your hippocampus taken out, you would still know the meaning of the word bottle. You would still probably know that George Washington is the first president of the country. And so this kind of distinction between episodic semantic memory, again, it's, it's not perfect and people are now questioning it, but there does seem to be this idea that you have this system that starts off reliant on the hippocampus and it has, it kind of, uh, um, it kind of brings together various kind of disparate associations. So, you know, a particular items in a particular context, even if that item doesn't necessarily belong in that context, um, you now know that, okay, this cat, you saw this cat at the beach, even though cat, cats don't normally occur at beaches, right? Um, whereas, you know, your semantic, eventually information starts to get, some people will say it gets transferred, but I think really the way, what it might be is that your hippocampus starts to train the cortex, which is kind of the, the area of the brain, the kind of outside, the, the area you see in human brains that have a lot of folds. It seems to be particularly developed in humans and mammals, but especially in primates and especially in humans. And um, it seems to be that what the hippocampus is kind of doing is that it seems to train the cortex uh, and it kind of gives it these sort of semantic memories. So that, you know, eventually if you get your hippocampus taken out, you still do have the, the regularities that have been pulled out across several episodes are, still remain. So after learning in several different places that George Washington the first president of the country, now you'll still have that information even if your hippocampus is taken out. And the only way to probably get rid of that fact is by destroying large swaths of the cortex, which does happen in something like Alzheimer's. But in Alzheimer's, for example, you know, the person doesn't lose the memory of their mother's face or the meaning of various words until well into the disease compared to, you know, at the very beginning, they're first just forgetting what they ate for breakfast. And so um, one idea that, you know, I've been kind of playing around with is, is, is that I think that, well, and I, I mean, it's not like just this is my idea, but this is something that other people have kind of come up with is that, there's certain aspects, I think, of who you are that become very almost like semanticized or become like semantic memory. Um, the certain beliefs that you might have or your sense of self or whatever becomes really kind of developed in the cortex such that, you know, even if you took out your hippocampus, that you you wouldn't be able to undo those memories, those undo those semantic memories. Like if you think you're a shit person, you're still going to think you're a shit person. And so it's really difficult to kind of unwrite those things or to disrupt them or to overwrite them, let's say. And so something like what, I, what I've been thinking about is how psychedelics might be able to help with that. And one reason is that, yeah, the serotonin 2A receptor, this is, you know, at least with classic serotonergic psychedelics, they bind to this receptor that does seem to be highly expressed in the cortex. And so um, there's this idea also that there seems to be greater plasticity. And so you might be disrupting some of these really hard-coded or crystallized semantic memories. But now that also has a bad side to it too, right? Like there's certain areas of cortex that don't just really process memories, but that rather they process like sensory information. And so, um, for example, you know, your ability to uh, construct the world and see edges and these sorts of things a lot of times comes from the back of your brain, the back of the visual cortex V1. And now you wouldn't want to mess with the circuitry there, even though there is a lot of serotonin 2A receptors, you wouldn't want to mess with the circuitry there because you might end up removing some of the computations that give you adaptive behavior. So for example, um, being able to like color constancy. So I see this white wall next to me as being completely white, even though if I were to take out individual pixels of that wall and blow it up on a computer screen on a white background, I would see that there's all kinds of different colors there. There's purples and grays and blues and yellows. But it's good that I see it as it one solid white because it's good to know that it's one solid material. It doesn't help me to see all the individual shadows and need to pick those apart. Now, sometimes I think under psychedelics, we do end up overwriting or, 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 or disrupting certain cortical processes that you know, are adaptive, which is why I think sometimes people end up getting things like flashbacks or maybe not flashbacks, but like um, HPPD, where they still have kind of a lingering 
perceptual effect. Um, so I don't know. Anyways, this idea of yeah, rewriting things in the cortex, I think, is um, is something that I've been interested in. How we rewrite things in the cortex, I don't think, is quite very well understood. Like, should we be, you know, for example, while people are under the effects of psychedelics, should we be trying to, you know, train their brain or whatever you want to say so that they rewrite some of these kind of maladaptive patterns of thought um, or should it happen later? Or what are the things we even should be training them if we are supposed to be training them while they're under the effects? These are all things that I don't really know. And, you know, I don't think anybody's really had the chance to really test them quite yet. Well, thank you very much for that very cogent and in-depth analysis there. I have a much better idea of exactly what you're working on right now. So I'd like to build upon some of those last statements and ask you about some of these companies that exist right now, right? Micopreneur, I've interviewed a number of uh, publicly traded CEOs representing companies doing novel drug development. And I've seen this perspective out there from the VC crowd, at least some of them saying that, why would we invest in these companies that are trying to improve upon drugs that are already very effective, right, in their own capacity? And I understand the need financially, if you're, if you're pursuing it from that angle, that you want to reduce the window of time that some of these substances are active. And that, that's something I've heard, right? Like, it's expensive to have two therapists in a room for eight hours if you're delivering something. But if we can get that down to two hours and have some of the same classic effects, it's just shortened, that could be appealing. So I'm curious about your take on this with all of these different companies. There's dozens of them that are developing novel drugs that essentially imitate classic psychedelics, but they're modifying certain aspects of those. Do you think that's something that is going to exist in the future? Is this something that we're going to see, you know, a lot of use for? Or is this something that feels a little bit more, you know, trying to reinvent there's that, that word, like trying to reinvent the wheel, right? Like we're all, we've already got LSD and psilocybin mushrooms, et cetera, et cetera. And we know that they can engender profound experiences and mystical experiences. So is there actual therapeutic value to modifying these substances? I know it's kind of a broad strokes question, but I'd love to get your take on it. Yeah. So I think, uh, I mean, I have, I have two sides to this. One is that, yeah, I think we already have drugs that seem to work. And, you know, something that I was kind of alluding to is what might be more important is what we're doing with the experience rather than, you know, the specific uh, uh, receptor targets. If we already have something that binds to the serotonin to receptor, maybe that's good enough, right? But I think the, the flip side of that is that, for one, we want something that's safer, um, drugs that bind to the serotonin 2B receptors. So surprise, surprise, you know, these things are structurally related. If serotonin binds to all these receptors, chances are they're, they're probably sharing some structure. And then it turns out that drugs that especially bind to the serotonin 2B receptor generally also tend to bind to the serotonin 2B receptor, which is in your heart. And it uh, apparently too much serotonin 2B binding can be um, toxic. So finding something that's safer, that is more selective for the serotonin 2A receptor. Um, at the same time, it might be the case that we do need these other serotonin, uh, serotonin receptors that, uh, that they need to be bound to. So, for example, psilocybin uh, and some of the tryptamines, they all seem to also bind to serotonin like 1A receptors. Whereas I think the phenethylamines, drugs like mescaline, 2CB, even MDMA binds to the serotonin 2 receptor. But all these phenethylamines seem to bind less, I think, to the serotonin 1A receptor. I don't know if it's a good thing that you bind the serotonin 1A receptor. The 1A receptor, I think, is the main inhibitory, um, the main inhibitory receptor in the serotonergic system. And so there might be something that it offsets some of the serotonin 2A effects. Or for that matter, there's a lot of studies uh, now in animals um, showing different measures of cognitive flexibility. And that serotonin 2A binding alone actually a lot of times ends up impairing cognitive flexibility. But when you also have serotonin 2C binding, now you get some kind of 
protective effect against these impairments in cognitive flexibility or vice versa. It's a really complicated thing where you can antagonize these two receptors and get individually and get different things. You can antagonize them together and get something. You can agonize them together and get something. You can agonize either one alone and get so It's a very, really complicated system. So it might be the case that actually binding to some of these other receptors might really be useful. And so, for example, you know, one of the things I was mentioning about, you know, the hippocampus and the uh, the cortex, this interplay between them, is that um, so there's a high expression of serotonin two receptors, especially in the cortex, but not necessarily in um, an interrhinal cortex or in the hippocampus itself. Interrhinal cortex is kind of like the entrance to the hippocampus. There is some expression of serotonin receptors, although it's more than just the 2A receptor, and it turns out the serotonin 2A receptor, which is normally activates neurons, uh, well, it's normally on neurons that activate other neurons. The serotonin 2A receptor in interrhinal cortex is actually on inhibitory neurons, so you're now activating neurons that inhibit other neurons. And so, um, you know, I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing, but it might be the case that maybe that 1A activation, which there, I think there's 1A receptors in interrhinal cortex as well as also in the hippocampus, that activating those 1A receptors might do something odd now with the hippocampus, now where it's retraining the cortex, for example, in some way that's adaptive or maladaptive. I don't know. Um, and so I think that you know now getting drugs that are much more selective, or for that matter, combining drugs such that you're inhibiting certain receptors that you don't want bound to and activating the receptors that you do want um, – so, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot to be worked out there just in terms of basic pharmacology and what works better. I did see, like, there were some surveys, which I'm extremely skeptical of whenever people, you know, talk about surveys on the internet. Um, but that I, I remember seeing, I don't remember if this was ever published at this as a conference, but that the tryptamines, the ones that do bind to the one receptor, might be more beneficial, at least as far as what people report, compared to the phenethylamines. And again, the phenethylamines are also like mescaline, which very few people, I think, are having mescaline experiences compared to psilocybin experiences. And then 2CB, you know, is another phenethylamine. I think probably the most, I want to say that might be the most commonly used phenethylamine um, of, of a drug that's more psychedelic than MDMA. Uh, and 2CB is, you know, it kind of in this weird special class where it seems to have very strong visuals. You get very strong visuals without necessarily having to get the very weird head trip experience. Um, although I think at higher doses, you definitely do get a weird head trip, but... The point is that the lower doses, which people tend to do and party on, they don't tend to get as much of those weird, you know, effects. Um, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's also something else to be said about, you know, I think uh, Matthias liked the, I don't know if he has a patent for this, but I know he put a study out and he's been putting out a bunch of patents too. But talking about antagonizing the serotonin 2A receptor after administering something like, you know, LSD, that way you only get, yes, a, few, a, a trip that only takes like three hours. Um so, you know, I think combining with other drugs might be a useful thing. I think also something like LSD binds to dopamine receptors. Is that important? I don't know. Maybe dopamine seems to be somewhat involved with – it can be involved with kind of uh, uh, helping with learning. So amphetamine, for example, you take amphetamine, it helps you study, whether it keeps you focused or it, you know, actually kind of helps make the memories stick. That's not always true, but it can be. And so is it the case that something like LSD could be useful because of its dopaminergic binding that it might help retain some of these newly learned associations? Or is that a bad thing? You have some bizarre, you know, psychotic episode, and now it remains in the system better because of the dopaminergic stimulation, which might be why more people report, they seem to report anyways, bad things happening with LSD or report flashbacks from LSD or whatever. So, I mean, I think these are all things that need to be worked out, and there might be new molecules that will be better than others. Um, but I think there's also a side to this that, yeah, we should probably be figure out what people should be doing in the first place underneath the effects of just a regular psychedelic. So, yeah. Sure. You know, I think it's a both and situation. I'm pretty open-minded and I like the classic psychedelics, but 
I also foresee that, you know, not everyone thinks like me and there's going to be a lot of people who are going to get hopefully a lot of value out of these uh, novel drugs. Hopefully if they're, you know, following a traditional trajectory where they're clinically proven to be safe. So it's something that I'll be keeping an eye on. And I was at an after party at one of the conferences a couple months ago and someone from the Wall Street Journal was explaining the research chemical market to me. And I've been a psychonaut for years and I've been around 2CB and a lot of more exotic substances. And I had no idea what half of these things were. He's like, oh, I can get you some. If you stick around, you know, I'll get you some of this 5-HTT, whatever it was. I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. You know, I mean, I got to go back and brush up on the Shulgin's work, I guess. So I'm curious, this next one is a bit of a personal question, but it also applies to, I think, a lot of people in your position right now, where do you suppose that psychedelic researchers can benefit in their research by having personal experiences with the psychedelics and the compounds that they're studying outside of a clinical lab environment? Or is the baseline of personal experience maybe neutral or could it potentially interfere with your research? And is this a conversation that people have in the labs about whether or not it gives you some sort of legitimacy if you've had personal experience with these compounds you're researching or vice versa, if you're actually more neutral and less biased because you've never experienced these and you're examining them in a clinical setting? Yeah. So, I mean, I think both would be the answer to that question. Um, I guess I haven't seen too many cases in which I can really say that people who did drugs came up with something that was, you know, they wouldn't have otherwise come up with had they not taken the drugs. Obviously, if Albert Hoffman had never tripped, <laughs> we wouldn't have LSD probably, you know. Um, and so I think there's there's cases like that. You know, I think there was another situation in which knowing that the serotonin twin receptors seem to be involved in uh, these effects that can sometimes resemble psychosis uh, is what helped develop some of these second generation antipsychotics that don't just block um, the D2 receptor, the dopamine type 2 receptor, subtype 2, but they also block the serotonin 2A receptor. In fact, some of them don't even, I think, bind at all to the dopamine receptors, and they just block the serotonin. Well, they do a bunch of other things, but their main kind of role is really blocking that serotonin 2A receptor. So I think that you know, there are cases in which, yes, if it hadn't been for some of these experiences that we wouldn't have uh, what we do, but it's become far less to be the case. I don't think anything that, you know, I'm saying or that, you know, Robin Cart Harris is saying or that anybody's saying really required anybody to do the drugs themselves. Um, I do think that, you know, I was, I forgot who I was talking to about this, but I think it, it'll be interesting to have like somebody who really understands, for example, the visual system to have them take a psychedelic and see, Hey, can I really pick out how things fall apart under the effects of psychedelics? Like how color constancy is exactly breaking down. Um, cause it's doesn't just, it doesn't seem to break down super perfectly. It seems to break down. Like sometimes people say, Oh, the purples really stand out or the oranges really pop out. Why is that the case? Is it, you know, and so the way a lot of times the way you perceive things is that, you know, you have something and then everything around it kind of gives you a context for how you, what color you actually end up seeing. So I imagine somebody who has a really good understanding of something like color constancy might be able to tell you, Hey, it turns out that there's an over-focus on peripheral reds or something like that. And now that's making you see purple more or something along those lines. Um, and then that would give us a better model for how these drugs are working in terms of, you know, the visual system, but I haven't seen that yet. And so I think that, yeah, right now what we are seeing is a lot of, I do think people are kind of over, are kind of, uh, I think they, they, they're overemphasizing their psychedelic experiences sometimes with the research 
that they're doing. Um, it's quite obvious to me that, and it's not just obvious. I mean, I've talked to people. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm no, I ain't no snitch, but I mean, yeah, nearly everybody I know has done the drugs. Um, some people haven't. That might be me. Um, I have to say that, you know, so I don't get fired. Uh, but that, um, yeah, I think it's it's very obvious to me at times where I'm just like looking at the things that people are studying. And a lot of times they're just studying, you know, it's, there's a lot of me search uh, or there's a lot of just like obvious findings that I feel like their judgment gets kind of drowned by, you know, what by their own experiences. And they don't realize like, wait, this isn't actually either the best study design or the best science, the best analysis. I don't know why you even bother doing this, you know, sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it can go both ways that I don't think it's necessary. And honestly, I wish that these discussions were happening more in labs because yes, for sure. The first thing I did when I got to Hopkins was uh, Roland actually said to me, we're not a group that discusses drug use. And I was like, what job is a job where I just come in and say, Hey, look at all the drugs I did this weekend. But, um, you know, it, it, yeah, it's, it's not something that we do discuss, um, in Harriet's lab. I don't know if she would have been against it. She never said we don't do this. Um, and in fact, Harriet's actually defended various people from who've gotten hurt by, for example, drug tests <laughs> who like didn't get jobs because of drug tests. She's actually been somebody who's like somewhat defended them. Um, but Yet it was never a situation where we talked about drug use. Whereas in like a memory lab, for example, we do sometimes talk about our like we use our like everyday examples of memory. And so um, something that you know I was I was doing was like I was wondering if you know if you you know as as whenever I was uh, this was a study a non drug study that I did in grad school. Whenever you reinstate a context, so if I study in this room and then I take my test in this room, um, the, the memories of will be better able to kind of arise because of I've, I studied in this room. And so there's, the, the associations I made with different things are going to help me retrieve the memories that I initially studied here when I'm taking my test here. And so one of the things I was wondering is, can that extend to not just kind of conceptual semantic things? Like maybe I might say, oh, hey, there's my cat. The cat reminds me of whatever ancient Egypt thing I was studying and sphinxes, whatever, you know, there's going to be some, some reactivation of, of the concepts that I was studying at that time. Um, but instead, can you actually get very specific perceptual information? So for example, if I study in this room, can I, uh, and then I take my test in this room on the exact shade of color that something I was studying was, you know, will I actually have a better perceptual memory of that exact same color because I'm now in this room where I first saw that stimulus. And, I remember I was just like, to, to use an example of like, that has to be the case was that, you know, when you're walking closer and closer to your car, you don't know where you parked your car. But as you start to get closer, you're like, wait a minute, I think I do know where this is. And that seems to be almost like a perceptual memory. Um, and then my advisor was like, well, first of all, space is a different sort of thing. And that those spatial memories actually have like a semantic kind of scaffolding. But in any case, it was an example of me using personal experience to try to say, this has to work. It turns out it doesn't work, at least in the study we ran, where, yeah, it, it you know, my advisor was probably kind of right. Uh, this is my old advisor, Dave Gallo, um, that it turns out when you reactivate the context in which something was studied in, you really only kind of get the level of the, the semantic information. You don't actually get an improvement of the actual perceptual, you know, there's no perceptual enhancement of the memory. It's just kind of like, I saw a cat in this room. I didn't see, I can't, I can't give you the exact memory of the exact cat with all the specific, you know, fur patterns and whatnot. So, um, anyways, that's, that, that was all to say that, yeah, I, I kind of wish that there was more open dialogue about drug use. Um, but at the same time, I do think that, yeah, people who've been doing, some people just, 
Yeah, they, they, they overweight their drug experiences, and it's pretty clear from their research. Sure. I guess you got to go to Dr. Carl Hart's lab for that one, right? So I'm curious about what are, the, what are some of the knowledge gaps that you see right now in your very specific area of focus? Of course, the human brain is still largely a mystery, right? There's very specific mechanisms that we understand, and you've gone into detail about some of the more intimate chemistry in the brain, right? But clearly, there still have to be some pretty fundamental gaps about things that we just don't understand or things that are not currently understood. Could you punch in a little bit on maybe some of the things in your studies that you're still baffled by? And is that something that you suppose will ever close that knowledge gap? And like maybe in the year 2035 with machine learning, et cetera, we'll get to a point where we understand why we have these experiences and what specific areas of the brain are engendering these experiences, et cetera. But since clearly there's still some mystery left in the world, what are those knowledge gaps that you see that currently exist? So, I mean, I think there's a lot of knowledge gaps and those are things that I, you know, although I have kind of like a kind of grander kind of, I shouldn't say theory. It's hard to call what I, what I think sometimes a theory, but at least I have kind of bigger ideas of things I want to test uh, for how I think psychedelics might work or one of the many different ways in which they might work for different, you know, specific effects. Um, I do kind of think that there's just very basic, you know, we kind of need the, uh, we need some of just the basic exploratory studies to kind of build, you know, to have the scaffolding to build some of these theories off of. And I find it actually really bizarre that the storytelling uh, that goes on in this field where there's such little information and yet people are creating these like massive stories um, for how these drugs work. And sometimes, you know, erroneously connecting the dots too, because there is actually data out there that goes against what they're saying, but it's just such a good story that, you know, either they ignored it or they just didn't see it because they were blinded by their own kind of story. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I guess from a very, you know, high level take, I mean, when it comes to studying the brain in general, yeah, we don't, you know, there's a whole paper that came out by David Popple and I was talking to John Krakauer about this recently. John Krakauer is this, uh, He's actually a neurologist. Uh, he, I can't remember if he also has a PhD too, but um, he's really, he's like a cognitive neuroscientist by practice. Uh, although I think he does actually also practice. He still is an MD. He still is a practicing MD. But he was just, you know, uh, I remember recently he was just giving me grief about like, you know, this idea of the way psychedelics work. He's like, dude, we don't even know how, uh, and this was, a, he was basically referencing this David Popple paper. We don't even know how memories are stored. We don't know how a word is encoded. We don't know how it, you know, it's represented in the brain. And I mean, I think that um, there's some truth to that. We can't turn on, we don't know the exact things to turn on to be able to say you are now uh, thinking of the word bottle or something like that. There's no, we just, we can't do that. You know, there's been some studies with patients with epilepsy where, yeah, when they're trying to trace, you know, uh, track where the seizure is, um, they'll stimulate your brain intracranially. And, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, hey, like there's this one thing where this person had like a, a high school neuron or something where they kept stimulated as one neuron. And it really seemed like the person was like, I feel like I'm back in high school or something like that. But that was totally by chance that, you know, they, they did that and they wouldn't be able to replicate that in, in a second patient. In fact, I don't even know if they'd be able to replicate that in that same patient again. Um, and so it, it's it's still very, you know, early days for just being able to understand just basic aspects of cognition. So how are we going to go about trying to then explain on top of cognition, like how, how to explain how cognition gets messed up under the effects of drugs, right? So, I mean, I think that there's, there's that gap in what we know. And I don't think that we need to first understand cognition to then try to study, you know, drugs. I think that that would be kind of maybe some people's take. 
Um, sort of like how some people would say, there's no reason to ever even study psychology. You should just study the brain. And once we really understand the brain, we can now just explain away all the different cognitive phenomena, which, by the way, is even though John Krakauer took the side of we don't even know how, you know, a word is 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 represented in, in the brain. He doesn't take the side of we should, you know, just study the brain and, and not study behavior. In fact, I think he takes the opposite side. Um, and so I think that but from a more kind of just basic, you know, here's a few, a handful of things that we don't know, like as far as memory goes, um, you know, we've been, we know that actually, apparently we didn't know this. There was a paper that was put out by uh, Brian Roth. I respect Brian Roth very, very much. Don't get me wrong. Um, but in the first sentence in the paper, he says that psychedelics don't impair memory. And it doesn't matter which form of memory you're talking about. Most of them are impaired by psychedelics, um, at least the ones that you know we think of that make us human, like episodic memory or working memory. So being able to hold a phone number in mind actually gets very much impaired by, by psychedelics. Episodic memory generally gets impaired at the encoding of new episodic memories. So if I'm high on psychedelics right now, I'm less likely to remember as much of this conversation tomorrow You know when I'm sober. And so, one, but however, recently, you know, when I was reanalyzing some data, I kind of found that certain aspects of episodic memory were impaired, whereas other ones might even be enhanced. So, actually, interestingly enough, this cortically dependent form of episodic memory, known as like familiarity, this feeling of knowing that something's happened without really having any evidence. So, one day I might see your face and say, hey, I uh, know I've met you before. I can't remember where I met you, when I met you, what your name is, but there's just a, you, you feel very familiar. That would be, you know, something that might actually get enhanced if I were high on psychedelics right now. Even though I might not be able to remember later on what we talked about or even who you are, um, your face might now seem highly familiar under the effects uh, after after taking something like psychedelics and, you know, encoding this your face memory now. Um, but... I mean, this is two studies, you know, or two reanalyses of data where the statistics weren't perfect. But I think there's some interesting signal there, um, including there's certain other processes that feed into this familiarity signal that have also been shown to be enhanced. So semantic priming is one of them. Low level, certain aspects of visual processing might be enhanced as well. And so, you know, seeing what these other processes that are getting enhanced, first of all, finding what does get enhanced, like first of all, replicating that semantic priming effect from 1994. I think that needs to be done. It's surprising it hasn't been yet. Um, same thing with there's this, this one study showing that the visual pop-out effect this is like a low-level visual process where if I show you a bunch of vertical bars and then one tilted bar, that tilted bar is going to very much pop out of the screen. Apparently, it pops out even more when you're under the effects in this case of it was RMDEA, which the R enantiomer of MDEA it does seem to bind in serotonin 2A receptor, probably is more psychedelic than taking the race mate of MDMA, but I don't know. Um, and so I think that some of those things need to be enhanced. Just when it comes to memory, there's now, um, so there's this whole effect in uh, the literature known as retrograde facilitation that happens with GABA-A drugs. So GABA-A sedatives like alcohol, uh, Ambien, and benzodiazepines. If you study when you're drunk, you're going to remember nothing the next day for your test. If you study and get drunk immediately afterwards, you're actually going to remember more for the, the next day of your test than had you not drank at all. And so this is actually a really bizarre phenomenon that's been replicated across the world, across different GABA-A drugs, including Ambien, benzos, and, and, and alcohol. It doesn't work with GABA-V drugs, apparently. That's, uh, so GHB was the drug they used in one study. Um, and it works with different types of stimuli, emotional stimuli, neutral stimuli, words, pictures, etc. Now, recently, there was a study showing that this might this doesn't work with cannabis. And I just told you it doesn't work with GHB. It doesn't work with methamphetamine. But there was a study in animals that was done in, I think, 2013. And then basically in humans now, this just came out this year with LSD, that if you administer LSD or in the animal study it was TCB2 immediately after um, 
studying something, you might actually enhance that memory. That is a crazy effect that needs to be replicated. Um, so first of all, you know, what types of things actually are impaired by psychedelics and what are enhanced? This is going to be useful for something like psychotherapy because we know that if, if your memory is impaired for what you were trying to learn during that psychotherapy session, well, if you don't remember anything, then it's probably not going to help you very much. Although there is a there is a study that's working on that particular question by giving people my dazolam simultaneously with the psychedelic experience. But, um, you know, so what actually does get impaired, what gets enhanced? That way we can figure out, we can really try to hammer home, like what can get enhanced and let's try to, you know, bootstrap off of that. Um, is it the case that after, you know, uh, uh, that anything that happened prior to taking psychedelics, that that gets enhanced uh, when you do take a psychedelic? So in that case, we would want to make sure before we give somebody a psychedelic, we don't want them to have like um be going through like a very anxious episode or else you know they might you might accidentally enhance the memory of that anxious episode before they take the psychedelic there's actually a paper that was with alcohol called forget drinking to forget with the idea being that you know people will go drink to forget you know their partner breaks up with them and then they go get wasted afterwards you might actually enhance the memory of the breakup if you do something like that so similar kind of you know caveat here to how we might you know uh, administer psychedelics in the future make sure that people are i mean which we kind of already do that to some degree but this is, you know, something that would be worth, you know, really studying. There might be certain things that we want to enhance before they go into their psychedelic experience. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is how the, how we retrieve these memories. So when we retrieve memories under the effects of psychedelics, at least with most other drugs, it seems to distort your memory. I don't know that to be true yet. Uh, we have a little bit of data that might speak to it, um, but it might be the case that these drugs are more likely to distort your memory when you try to retrieve memories under the effects of a psychedelic, in which case we should really be moving away from, you know, Freudian therapies that try to recover repressed memories or, you know, whatever BS that, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's very basic just, you know, cognitive effects that haven't really been explored yet. And it'll be nice to kind of get some idea of how these drugs are impacting, you know, these different processes beyond just, oh yeah, they impair cognition or, and I think that's kind of the easy way of sort of looking at things um, without having to think a little bit more deeply into uh, what these drugs are doing and what are kind of the building blocks of, of different drug effects. Sure. You know, an anecdote popped up. I remember reading about some CIA experiments back in the day where they would try to give psychedelics to enemy assets to extract truth from them. And then it turns out that just doesn't work at all. So then they tried using it on their own assets to scramble the truth. And it was just like, all right, it didn't work for that. Maybe we'll try for this. I'm like, I, I would imagine, you know, it could work in any number of ways. And, you know, I'm not particularly interested in following all the rabbit hole into that research. I just thought it was funny that they tried it for one thing. It actually did the opposite thing. So like, oh, I guess we'll just do the opposite then. So, you know, we've kind of touched pretty deeply upon a number of different subjects tonight. And the last question I have for you before we let you go, Manoj, is, has to do with what are you working on that we can look forward to over the next six months to a year? And what would you like to be working on in an idealized future? If you were able to write your own control test, etc., what is something that would be really interesting to you that you think is being overlooked right now currently in the, the paradigm of study that you're in? Uh... Yeah, let's see. Um, so, I mean, I think one of the things, you know, I mentioned that it's it's slowly taking off is we have just, we're just looking at a bunch of different cognitive effects of these drugs. Um, I think that, so we're looking at, for example, uh, yeah, convergent thinking. And I think divergent thinking, Natasha Mason at this point has shown at least acutely, um, doesn't really seem to get better under the effects of psychedelics. Um, but we're also looking at this one, and I, I don't think convergent thinking does either, to be honest, but we're looking at a new task that kind of involves different semantic associations. So in some ways it kind of might, it kind of tests the idea of semantic priming or semantic activation, though not exactly. 
Um, but we're also looking at, you know, we're looking at seeing whether or not we can replicate that memory effect, whether or not we do get enhancements of familiarity, but impairments of this kind of more hippocampally dependent form of memory, which the impairments of the hippocampally dependent form of memory are almost certainly going to come out. That's been shown for a while now. The enhancements of the cortically dependent form of episodic memory, I'm not quite certain about. Uh, and so, you know, this is something that, you know, we're looking into. Um I'm trying to think of what else. I mean, so we have, we have, so I have an opinion piece that we're working on where we're trying to talk about why uh, certain things are retained. How are they retained under the effects of psychedelics? If there's this idea that everything kind of becomes like the snow globe is shaken and then, you know, shouldn't it just keep shaking and nothing really gets, you know, learned? How do things, how do things get learned and, and retained under the effects of these drugs? Um, I think that there's, I'm trying to think of what else, I mean, if it were up to me, I guess I should say, maybe I should go more into if it were up to me and what I would do. Well, I guess one of the things I would do is yeah, try to replicate some of these, you know, uh, enhancements of different cognitive processes under the effects of psychedelics. There's also, um, something I was kind of, you know, been sort of thinking about. So, uh, one idea is that if this, there is this impairment of this hippocampally dependent form of memory enhancement of this cortically dependent form of memory. Computationally, the way those are modeled are that the there's kind of like an all or none is the hippocampally dependent form of memory. So you either remember something or you don't. Um, kind of like the way an action potential in a neuron works. It either you, you know you get a firing or there's no fire. You know um, there's no kind of in between. Uh, and so there are these like graded potentials, for example, in your retina, but that doesn't really tend to exist as much for your, uh, standard neurons in, in the rest of the brain. And so, um, the thing is that, yeah, the threshold process is, is the, it's hippocampally dependent, whereas this cortically dependent memory process seems to be more kind of graded. And so you can have multiple kind of gradients with which, uh, you can have this, you know, experience like I, I you, your face feels familiar very, very familiar or not very familiar or somewhere in between, you know, I can have multiple different states at w of which, you know, I can, I can feel that something's familiar. And so one idea would be that you have more kind of continuity in the way you process information under the effects of psychedelics so that it might be the case that you can have, for example, the uh, existence of multiple things. It's not just an all or none. It's not that I either. So for example, one of the, one of the findings that um, I think some of the best work that's really helped us build this scaffolding so far is from Fons Vollenweider, where they looked at a bunch of very basic cognitive effects. Um, this was done in like the 2000s. And one of the things they showed was with bino binocular rivalry. So this is where they'll put two things in your eye, um, two, let's say, different gradients uh, or two different, uh, 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 I'm trying to think of what the name of those are, those gradings, sorry, gradings. So like, you know, an, um, an up or down grading or a, a left and right. Or, or you can even say, you know, you have a dog and a cat. And people, usually the way it works is that you'll kind of oscillate between the two with what you see. You see a dog, now you see a cat. You see a dog, now you see a cat. Um, but apparently under the effects of psychedelics, you're more likely to see kind of an in-between um, percept. And so there might be more tolerance to kind of this, these in-between states. Um, and not it's not just all about thresholds. It's either, you know, once you get a certain level of activity, boom, you move to the next level. It's like, no, now you can have this in-between state that exists under the effects of psychedelics. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's, there's other aspects to that too, where it might not, you know, require, you know, you, you don't have to have so much activity to move up the hierarchy, but rather you can move up the hierarchy slowly in this like kind of graded fashion as you process information. So, um, I think that's something that I would, I would, that, that would be something I'd want to be able to test. Uh, I have kind of certain behavioral ways that I'd, I'd do that, um, as well as certain neuroimaging ways, but I think something else that, um, I guess I've been interested, I've been talking to Phil Corlett a little bit about this, is that 
there's this idea that, you know, the way psychedelics work only is that they relax high level priors. So this idea that you have these really high levels in your brain and that um, they, you know, somehow are now having less influence on the sensory information coming in or the way that sensory information is processed. And, you know, a big kind of, you know, flaw to that idea is that, well, a hallucination, which people do have proper hallucinations sometimes under the effects of psychedelics. If you give them a massive dose, 30 milligrams, while they're laying on the couch with eye shades on, sometimes they really do lose touch with reality and they really do see, you know, they hallucinate full out landscapes and people and whatever. Um, and so you don't need DMT for that, by the way. You can do that apparently with some, you know, pretty just high doses of psilocybin. Uh, and in fact, technically it's lower doses of psilocybin because I think 50 milligrams is what you take when you inhale DMT, whereas I think 30 milligrams will can, can do that with psilocybin um, orally. And so one of the things that, you know, um, the, this idea of having hallucination is essentially a strengthened prior. I can't, I, I need to have a prior for who my mom is to be able to hallucinate my mom. And so now why is it the case that sometimes you have this really odd that's a really odd kind of back and forth where you have this, you know, uh, rela relaxation of priors, which does seem to be the case. You kind of process the world in a really new fashion. You also have this like strengthening sometimes of priors where it seems to be the case that you have a very, you know, you can literally hallucinate something or you can fixate on something for too long. People can get in these weird like uh, ruts also when they're under the effects of psychedelics. You can also get really weird kind of back and forth between very high novelty and very high familiarity. People will say that, you know, they're basically, they get deja vu like feelings, right? So there's a really weird kind of back and forth between, uh, you know, the way information seems to be processed, where it seems to be facilitated in a bottom up way, but it can also seem to be facilitated in a top down way. And so trying to figure out what conditions um, evoke which set of situations I think would be really useful um, going forward and which is why I think we need to move away from just scanning the brain while people are doing whatever the hell they want in the scanner resting state which I think is just a lazy person's way of not having to do your background in you know cognitive research and try to really figure out what is the most important thing we should be testing right now um, you know in terms of collecting behavior and and mapping that onto the brain. Man, thank you so much for dropping the heavy intel right here about metacognition, and we got all kinds of stuff we touched upon today, and I think we're going to have to do a part two of this, and I always like to loop back and track people's research and see how their views and you know how things have changed over time and what the data says. I definitely used to be one of those more skeptical types who's like, I'm not sure about the lab environment, and then over the last 10 years or so, I've come to really appreciate and trust science and people like you who are doing the good work, you know, mapping these different mystical states, essentially, and kind of figuring out what makes the clock tick, because there's there's definitely so much research out there that's just kind of waiting in the wings. And so thank you for bearing the mantle, taking up the mantle and doing all that on behalf of the rest of us who are curiously following your your work and and people like you you know at Johns Hopkins etc cetera, etc cetera. so thank you very much for taking the time to come on the Michaelpreneur podcast you're welcome back anytime Manoj Das give it up for him one time thank you and that is a wrap thank you for sticking around to the bitter end it's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly don't be a stranger let me know what you thought of this episode and please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it you can reach out to me via email michaelpreneur at gmail.com or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Michaelpreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Michaelpreneur Podcast.